he wants to be the best, but why does he want to be the best? And you don't fully understand that. It almost sounds like the samurai version of Pokemon. <laughs> no, because Blade of the Immortal is the one where he's got to catch them all. Pokemon is basically a samurai epic set in the present. I found the answer looking in your eye. I go out walking all day long. Take away this lonely night, soon it will be gone. Cause I'll tell you everything about living free. How are you feeling, man? <sighs> Tired. Burn out. I hear ya. I mean, I eat healthy. I'm vaccinated. Uh, maybe I should try exercising. Uh, I mean, but we already talked about this when we talked about Alison Bechtel's The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Uh, exercise could help. <sighs> I don't even know what I do. How about mass murder sword fighting? I think I need to clear that with my wife and kids. Well, look, if you don't have the wherewithal to cut down your enemies with katanas... Another gear-based sport also feels expensive. Then let's talk about the manga epic Vagabond by Inoue Takeshiko. What a coincidence. I happened to read that over the past week or so. Well, what a coincidence, Roman. As if that were scripted, I did too. Now, Inoue Takeshiko made his name with Slam Dunk about a high school basketball team, and he also did Real about wheelchair basketball. But Vagabond is very much a period piece, and it follows the life and times of the real-life Japanese warrior Miyamoto Musashi, a 17th century swordsman and philosopher. Vagabond, which debuted in the late 90s, is essentially Musashi's origin story, following the young man's adventures as he journeys through Japan picking fights. Pretty much the same plot as Street Fighter. And it's 37 volumes long. <sighs> I'm getting flashbacks of Ultimate Spider-Man. But we only read the first three. Can't afford a fancy workout katana if I'm buying manga volumes in bulk. No, sir. Now, I will also say that Vagabond was a favorite comic of my cousin Sam. He's the son of my Auntie Pinky, who is a frequent listener of this podcast. Sam took his own life in August 2020, and so this episode is dedicated to him. Sam, I never met you, but I heard that in the world of Dungeons & Dragons, you are a master player of the magic loot. I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Segel. And we are two dudes who are just trying to make it work. Whatever it is. So, Roman, what'd you think of Vagabond? I, I think it's pronounced Vagabond, but... <laughs> I, I didn't know what to expect because, you know, at first you just put this book on our list and then you, you mentioned why it was on our list. So I couldn't not come into this a little loaded, but eventually I just kind of let myself go in a few sittings and read this. And classic Ryan Joe quarantine comic style. I mean, I guess you told me that this one has other volumes like the story's not done. And I, I did a little bit of reading afterwards about the book and people love this book, Ryan. People love this story, and I think the first three volumes only scratch the surface. So I kind of have to couch some of my criticisms and my point of view on it. But as I said, it was kind of a loaded reading because I think we both have a history and a perspective on what happened to your cousin. We've, we've all experienced death and tragedy in different ways. And while this book isn't about that same kind of death and tragedy, it's it's weird, man. I couldn't. I tried to not read between the lines, and I think that hurt my reading, but when I was able to just kind of let go and enjoy the book for what it is and see what your cousin really liked about it, I really liked this book. It was, it was fun, it, I, but I, I didn't get enough of it. I want more of this. I feel like we need to go read more volumes of Agamemnon to like have a true point of view. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I kind of felt the same way. I mean, actually, first when I first read it, you know, knowing that this was Sam's favorite book, I was trying to you know figure out what he liked about it, and there was a pretty big 
age gap between me and Sam. And so, you know, I don't, I didn't like know him closely, like growing up. So reading this book, you're trying to piece together, you know, what he liked about it and draw parallels uh, between his life and, and the life of this swordsman trying to find meaning in the world. And then, you know, after, after a while, you just kind of get absorbed in the story. You stop thinking about sort of some of the exterior stuff that, Right, right. That, that 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 really kind of initially drew you to the book, which is you know a, a, a tenant of of good storytelling. And you know, I I will say like the only other manga period piece I I read was Blade of the Immortal, which I was a huge fan of in my twenties. And you know, I kept drawing comparisons to Vagabond and Blade of the Immortal, kind of unfavorably and also unfairly because they're doing two very different things. Which do you like better? I'm a I'm a big fan of Blade of the Immortal, and I really like that because it's got this very clear quest of a girl whose family has mm. been murdered by the leader of a renegade sword school, and she wants mm. revenge, and she enlists a swordsman who cannot be killed to help with his with her revenge. And as he kind of progresses, killing different enemies. First off, each of the enemies that he encounters, they're all really weird. Like they're 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 Dickensian in their weirdness, and and then as you proceed, like the first person he kills is a straight up psychopath. But as you get don't ruin him, hey hey hey, it, don't ruin it for me. I think we're gonna read it okay. eventually. So. <laughs> anyway, I like. Well, the, I, I guess let me just say let me just say high level. I like the variety of of the, the of the villains in Blade of the Immortal and how that book kept surprising you. And with Vagabond, it's a little bit unfair to, for me to make that comparison because Vagabond, I read the first three volumes. Blade of the Immortal, I read. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read pretty deep into it. Hmm. And I, I think Vagabond is really more a story of self-discovery, or it's going to be a story of self-discovery. We, we've yep. really only yep. kind of like scratched the surface. So it's so, much more. It's much more singular focused. Vagabond yeah. is. So <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying it my way because. You're on the journey with one person, and it's one person that I don't want to say is relatable, but I I could tell by the end of book one, they're laying down the hooks for you to relate for relate to this guy. Yeah. You're on this journey with this guy. And, you know, he is a historical figure. It's kind of this dark – he's not even dark and tortured, but he's – he doesn't – know his way in the world he thinks he knows what his way in the world is and he's kind of pursuing it and there's a couple of quotes uh, i wrote down about like how he views the world and what he wants from the world specifically the idea of being the unrivaled under the heavens invisible under the sun like mm. these things he he wants to be the best but why does he want to be the best and you don't fully understand that uh, but it it's like, like it almost sounds like the samurai version of pokemon no, because Blade of the Immortal is the one where he's got to catch them all. Pokemon is basically a samurai epic set in the present. I, I, I hate to say this is a stereotype. We've read quite a bit of manga. How much epic manga have we read or epic in scope manga that we've read, right? I've read Summit of the Gods. We also read uh, Mountain of Madness, which is an interpretation of a Lovecraftian story. But And this is where writing and art kind of combine to make a singular story. I love it when, and you see this more in manga, when it's the same person doing both. And there's this, like, simplicity. The artwork is vivid. It is hyper-realistic, but I think you even said it. Manga reads fast because there's, like, four panels to the page. You are immersed in these kind of, like, 
simple, simple, simple sequential art. It's not the who's the guy that did New X Men. It's Frank Quietly. Yeah, it's not this Frank Quietly, David Aha complexity of sequential art. It's these kind of four beats that kind of take you through the mood in a very swift and precise fashion. It's it's just so much more intentional, and there's a beauty to that simplicity. And I, I can't. You can't not turn the pages when you're reading manga, I guess, because you got to know what's happening on the next uh, panel. So it's almost cliffhanger. Every page is cliffhanger by design. It's like a Dan Brown book. You can't put it down. It goes so fast, right? Like, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Know, so, yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was just thinking about that. I actually started reading. You know, I pitched reading all three epic volumes of the horror manga, The Drifting Classroom, and I actually started reading that. And I, I was just kind of going through it, and I was, I was burning through that book. But I mean that that is a tenant of of manga. It's like these big bold gestures, big panels, and these big heavy phone books. Yeah, and and also there's not a lot of dialogue, right? We're not doing an Alan right. Moore sort of situation where there's these huge captions. And I think because you burn through it so fast, you kind of miss the art of it because you're you're really skimming it. But there's also I think especially with like the artwork of Vagabond, which is incredibly detailed. It does reward, you know, kind of slowing down and just looking at how the panels are put together, looking at the expressions on people's faces, the the body language on the faces, the way he conveys movement, the decisions he makes when he decides what angle to show a certain character. It's really fluid storytelling. And I think what makes it so impactful is the fact that it's often kind of invisible, just the, the deafness with which he tells the story. And I think you know, that, before... that that helps with the story also because the story is actually it's very primal. It's it's this guy who's just kind of motivated to find out where he exists in the world, and he's doing that through through the sword. Before we started recording, we were talking about a different TV show that I decided a comic book TV show that I wanted to start watching, and I can't get in behind the pacing. Manga especially is just such an efficient kind of story injection vehicle that I've almost become impatient with like narrative television, right? And it's a richer story. I find reading and listening more interesting because you're only consuming with some of your senses when you're reading. You're, you know, you don't get the full sight, sound, and motion. You're filling in those blanks with your brain. Similarly, the voices are in your head. When you listen to something, you're having to imagine in your head, and your brain just works faster. Versus when you have to show me every single thing, like in film, mm-hmm. to a lesser degree, because film has to get it done in two hours very efficiently. But I feel like everything else in the world drags. Every other form of storytelling drags. And this is a, and again, not all manga art is meant to be as kind of literal and realistic. But man, this guy has command of the craft, not just sequential frameworks and body language and facial expression. But I mean, this is like, it's not like Jim Lee hyper-realistic. There's absolutely a clear, you know, manga kind of stylization to it. But he, he has mastery of the form and it's clear and that just makes it just a very compelling story to kind of inject into your into your ear ear brain you know yeah i agree with you like manga especially is is always going to be fast paced i i would say that probably the most meditative manga we've read on this show is probably ayako oh no you know probably the pushman actually because that's really stepping back and looking at the interior lives of these people in post war japan but even that comes at a really fast pace. It's very simple drawings, big panels. I read a lot of novels. I read a lot of prose. And it is kind of 
I actually like the way that slows you down and puts you in a more meditative mood and really mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. immerses you in the world in a very different way. I don't want to go too much into the whole books versus comic books sort of debate, which feels sort of high school, but they, they do cater to, to different aspects of my personality. Well, so let's come back to, to Vegabound, like the the main character, right? I just want to say something real fast though, Roman, real fast. So when I first start, when, when I f- first started talking about Vagabond, you said, Ooh, Ryan, I think it's pronounced Vagabond. And I looked it up <laughs> and I found out that it was pronounced Vagabond, but now you're pronouncing it Vagabond. I feel I've put like a little mind virus through into your ear <laughs> and we reverse stances now. I just want to point that no. out. I, I think it's vagabond. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> we should actually talk about the book. Like, so the main character, he starts out as effectively he's a Ronin, right? At the end of a battle, yeah. This guy, Shinmen Takezo, and I apologize for butchering his name, but who will eventually become known as Miyamoto Musashi. That's sort of like he he when he's reborn, he gets a new name. So he's initially he's initially Takizo, and then later on he becomes Musashi, and who's in a real life historical figure. Is yes. that correct? Yeah, he's a real life swordsman and uh, and philosopher, and I know all of this because I I Wikipedia did. <laughs> how much of it is real? I don't know how much of it is interpretive. But he's an angry young man who's traversing Japan with his best bud, right, and encountering bandits and women and and going back home and again i don't know where this is going i just know i actually don't think it's about the plot i think it's about the journey yeah and that's what i really that's what pulled me in because like good fiction like good stories and this is what i do wonder i would assume your cousin sam had read the whole thing you make a friend in this book right you have a person that you are relating to you care about what happens to them and the people that they encounter on their way and I'm guessing we've only covered probably like 20, I don't know how many volumes are out there, but it feels like we've only covered probably 20% of this guy's journey. We're at the very beginning of this effective warrior monk's like interpretive journey. And I don't want to say I like the guy, but I like seeing, I'm so curious about this guy. There's enough hooks in it that I want to know. And honestly, someone who I really didn't like by the end of the book is Matahachi, his, his BFF. Yeah, the kind and of loser by, and a big loser. Well, but apparently, and again, this doesn't spoil anything, but he has an arc too. So we're just, oh, yeah. we're witnessing the beginning of these two characters' arcs that are probably pushing and pulling from each other, Anakin and Obi-Wan style almost. I mean, yeah, Marahachi is essentially, he's a clown, right? And, and and that's really kind of a tenant of a lot of, certainly like a lot of Akira Kurosawa movies, right? You've got the warriors and then you've got the clown, like the Shiro Mifune character in Seven Samurai. Um now, I don't know if Matahachi is a real character based off of a real historical figure or not, but certainly his presence here and the way he's represented feels like a throwback to samurai movies. But see, I don't know, because at the beginning of the book, he's just as much a warrior, or as much a failed warrior, a ronin. The first encounter with the bandits, Matahachi, you know, holds his own. Again, he goes off to do other things in the woods with yeah. the girls, but... He is portrayed as a coward and a clown by the end, but it's almost like you can see his redemptive arc coming. I don't know. I, I just, I don't know, but I'm curious. I'm not saying I like either of these characters yet, but I find myself growing attached to their journey. And that's why the, the, the warning 
if you just get this mega volume that we got, this phone book, <laughs> like it's you're gonna feel like, oh wow, it's it's clearly driving to some conclusion with these people, and it leaves you hanging. Not because it's a cliffhanger, but because it's a manga that is a multi-volume epic. So I genuinely want to finish reading this story, and, and this is gonna sound bad, not because I particularly think it's great yet but everything i've read is like the people who read this love this it's kind of like blade of the immortal which i've not read but it's like this is considered one of the greats by many and so i don't see it yet and i'm guessing i have to read the whole damn thing to see it which damn it ryan so you know i for me the first half of this book i was i got a little impatient because it was just Basically, Musashi, before he becomes Musashi, a lot of people, he's kind of terrassing through, you know, after kind of that losing battle. Terrassing? Is that a word? Is yeah, that a word? Terrassing through through Japan and, you know, just kind of cutting, encountering bandits, cutting down a lot of people. And then he has this encounter with a monk where I'm not quite sure what the result of that encounter is other than he kind of calms down. I'm not sure, like, what he realizes about himself. You know, that's... Maybe something will that will be explored later. Yeah, they're forming the super team, man. They're forming the super team. But it's just, it you know, it it felt a little directionless. And then once he goes to Kyoto and he goes to that sword school, that's when the book, I, I really kind of started to feel the book's power. Because, I, I you know, from a plot perspective, it's pretty straightforward. He goes into sword school he and he tries to challenge the the masters at the sword school. And it goes well until it doesn't. And that's kind of the end. But the way that whole sequence gets drawn out, I thought was actually kind of masterful because it was like the whole half of the book. And there is just a lot of suspense as he works his way through different tiers of swordsmen at the sword school. And it's not all combat based. You know, you see Musashi kind of making assumptions and then those assumptions being sort of thwarted. And you see him come to these to this sort of realization about his own limitations and you see what he does about it. And so there's this really interesting arc that happens just within the context of the source school, all the, all during that time, of course, there's, there's the threat of the, the two master swordsmen, the owners of the sword school, mm. two brothers who are coming and what sort of, what sort of conflict are they going to pose for Musashi? And, it's not really, they're, it's not they're planting seeds. They're, right. they're planting seeds. Right. right, and I think it does a really great job at kind of setting up this this conflict between these these two brothers who own the sword school, and 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 also during this time, it also kind of situates the sword school within Kyoto. Now you know it's a really awesome sword school, but you get the sense that everyone is fucking sick of all of the thugs that come out of it. So you know, it, there's this great <laughs> there's this great world building that happens within this very simple narrative, really. I get frustrated. It's a beautiful phone book that I'm proud to own, but <laughs> I, I, but I feel like the first part of the journey, when he kind of escapes with the monk, that's kind of where you should close the phone book and stop it. I don't need the introduction to the next chapter, unless that's intentionally, you know, a cliffhanger to make me want to buy the next one because it is not bookended very well. You, you've literally, you spend all the time doing the window dressing of the main character, his best friend and kind of laying the groundwork for their tension and their separation. And you show some of that resolving in the village and the issue with the monk and the hunt and all of that stuff. That's a great book. One leave it. At that. <laughs> the going to Kyoto, 
you barely, I mean, we're literally left at a cliffhanger. What is going to happen? It's not a significant cliffhanger, but his resolution on the things he wants to accomplish, the things he needs to do, are not accomplished. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's very frustrating to kind of get to the end of a of a phone book and find out that you have to buy another phone book. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you know, ideally we would have gone through a full arc. And I, I think we're, we're probably doing a disservice to Vagabond in reviewing it the way that we are. Um, but is this something that you would, you know, you'd want to continue reading? It's weird because I'm, I'm staring at my comic book shelf of graphic novels that I bought every volume of. Why the Last Man and Fables and Preacher and Ultimate Spider-Man and Hellboy. It's kind of like watching a show on Netflix. It's all there. It's binge-worthy. These are comfortable friends and stories that you can settle in with. But I'm literally, as I was looking it up on eBay, you know, to get all these 12 volumes would cost me $500. I, so no, I don't, that, that's frustrating. Like, I don't know, maybe one a year I, I'd revisit this. Like once a year, maybe on Quarantine Comics, we should read a book of Vagabound, Vagabound. As I look at the graphic novels on my shelf, I was buying not issues of Why the Last Man or Preacher, but I was buying volumes of it every three months as it came out. So in kind of a pace, pace, drip, drip, sure. Because I can see it's building towards something. I, I've i read that it gets better and more significant as you go further. I've heard the same thing about Cerebus. But it's a commitment, man, to jump in. And I don't know if I'm ready for that commitment. What about you? Uh, Yeah, I'd be interested. I mean, look, so, you know, at our age, there is always sort of like, money and space considerations when it comes to deciding whether or not to invest in a comic my child would have to go to a state school if i kept reading this book (laughs) i i wish i had suggested the second volume at least because i do feel like we were kind of cut off a little bit with the end of the first volume and again that's not a criticism of vagabond that's just more of a limitation of how we're reviewing it um basically i stopped reading right when his journey started to get really interesting and it seemed like he had taken an interesting step and i wanted to see where where that led to why do you think why do you think sam liked this book so much i don't know if i were to conjecture please you know it's a story about a guy who's trying to find himself which you know when i when i said that you know I, i was kind of thinking about about sam you know sam was very interested in body movement he would travel around asia and he would practice uh, martial arts and train throughout mm. the world. And so you can't help but draw some parallels between him and Musashi. So I think that might have had something to, to do with it. You know, he, he, Musashi became sort of like this warrior philosopher. And I can kind of see that that maybe was what Sam had been working towards. Though I don't know, you know, having never spoken to Sam about that again, I'm, that's pure conjecture. So How did you find out he was into this book? Auntie Pinky told me. She mentioned mm. it to me. Has so has has did Sam read all of it? Does he have like all twelve volumes on his shelf? That that I don't know. She actually mm. just showed me a, a picture of the first volume, and, mm. and I was like, okay, that that actually, you know, and that's when I started googling it, and that's when I was like, mm. that looks mm. interesting. It's actually kind of interesting. Like Sam in his twenties read Vagabond and. And in my 20s, I read Blade of the Immortals. So we were both kind of like <laughs> reading these. It's like com- competing samurai camps. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of both reading different ultra-violent stories about disaffected Japanese swordsmen. Though, you know, uh, the the swordsman in in Blade of the Immortal is not really trying to find himself. He's a little bit more 
irreverent. And, mm. um, you know, and I was always kind of very attracted to the strangeness of the of the villains and their stories, which were very, very diverse and how those mm. stories complicated the quest for revenge. So that was that was what drew me to, to and also I really liked the the scenes of ultraviolence. I would have probably really liked Vagabond too, in, you know, it, you know, during that time, just just because I was really into ultraviolence, and I still kind of am to an extent, but less so. You know, you know, it's interesting. I've um, because so much of what we've done on Quarantine Comics is revisiting books from our youth or books that came out when we were young, like Grendel, right? Which, as older men, we don't have the appreciation that we might have when we were in our twenties. What were those formative comic books of your 20s? Like you were reading Blade of the Immortal. I was reading, you know, Ethan Hawke. That's a that's a formative book that I related to, even though it wasn't a comic. Or I was reading, gosh, I'm just staring at my bookshelf. What was I reading, right? Like I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man, right? Because I think revisiting the books is interesting in adulthood, right? We've seen more. We've lived more. We, we're more fully formed humans. But reading the books that were forming with us is really interesting. I, I would imagine... Sam, when he was reading Vagabound, you, when you were reading Blade of the Immortal, me, when I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man, when we were all in our mid-20s, we were forming, and these books were forming, these stories were forming alongside us. And so I think the interesting question is, what were the comics you were reading in your 20s, once you got out of your Jim Lee image comics phase? Yeah, Blade of the Immortal, Transmetropolitan. It was always, yeah. you know, it, it's interesting. <laughs> I can, I can these... peg your books. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not surprised. It's it's interesting how these books serve almost as a timeline, indicating where you were psychologically. Yeah, yeah. You know, because why? Why? You know, I I I don't think Transmetropolitan and you know Warren Ellis, the writer appeals to me as much as when I was in my early 20s, when I kind of wanted to be this sort of like irreverent, you know... Journalist, journalist yeah, with superpowers like Spider-Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah, does, well, yeah, the, where, who could make the world do what he wanted to do through his, yeah, like, yeah. Through his trickery, Writing. you know, who, yeah. who took no shit from anybody, didn't care, you know... These and, characters and, are idols. These characters we read in our 20s were idols. Yeah, and and the same thing with Manji, the the main character in Blade of the Immortal. You know, he was just yeah. this irreverent swordsman. Hey, whatever, I don't give a shit. I'm just really good at what I do, and I'm going to kill all of you. So yeah, so that was that. I, I mean, that my my my. Interest I, in I just just want to make it clear. That's what Ryan was reading, and I was like crying over Peter Parker and Mary Jane. Okay, just, just like we had, we probably were very different in our in our twenties, <laughs> despite our, our shared affinity for comics. What else did you read besides Ultimate Spider Man? Ex Machina by Brian K. Vaughn, Fables. Okay, we have some things in common, my yeah, friend. There you go. But it's just it's it's really interesting because you know it's the for, it's not those aren't your for, your formative years or your teen years. That's music is a formative thing. But if you're a comic book fan, of course you know we all grew up on the same superhero schlock that we all had at the same time because we weren't cool enough to read this indie stuff. But I think 20s, your 20s are kind of formative years to adulthood, right? You're you're transitioning out of teenagerness. You're becoming independent with your own paychecks, your own apartment. You're buying your first car, all these things. And the, what you read in that formation of adulthood is really interesting because you're reading these characters, be it Spider-Jerusalem, be it Shinman Tegeso, be it Peter, Ultimate Peter Parker – you're seeing these people that are a little younger than you, a little older than you, but are doing a lot more than you. And you're aspiring and you're stretching and wishing to be like them. Even if you don't actually do that at work, that's kind of like the person you imagine yourself to be on your best day, so to speak, or your most fun day. 
And it's that kind of like personality stretch goal as you're trying to form into an adult. I think it's really, really interesting. Did you become Spider Jerusalem? No. Did I become Peter Parker? No. Did Sam become Musashi? No, none of us did. But I do think the vision of these people, the journey of these people, I think it really does shape who we want to be, who we picture ourselves being on our best day. So how about today, though? Does that hold true to the comics that you're reading today? Are there comics that really kind of cater to the aspirations of men in their late 30s and early 40s? You know, it's interesting. I, as a father, I read comics differently. I don't remember if, yeah, when, when Lena came on and we talked about Miss Marvel and Kamala Khan, I read Miss Marvel as a protective father. I want my daughter to be as amazing and as awkward as Kamala Khan, right? Adrian Tomine, every time I read him, he's a contemporary of ours. He's a peer of ours. Even Jean Lun Yang, even though he's like an idol of mine, he's only like five or ten years older than us, man. Like, he's further along. He had his kids earlier than I did. But, you know, like, I now sometimes read authors and autobiographies a little differently now and sometimes i read characters as an adult looking at someone younger than me i don't mm -hmm. read too many comics of a guy in his mid early mid 40s in his midlife crisis doing a podcast you know like maybe there are comics out there that i mean tomine the loneliness of the long distance cartoonist that i mean we spent that whole book talking about our own misgivings about our own midlife crisis right like but there aren't a lot of books that do that to me that trigger me the same way trigger me, challenge me, inspire me the same way the books of my youth did. What about you? Yeah, I, I find myself drawn to creators who uh, just have a really weird, unique way of seeing the world. And that's something that kind of manifested in my mid-30s, uh, maybe early 30s even. And I think, I think that's probably because I want to see the world through somebody else's eyes in a way. Mm that I didn't in my 20s when I just kind of wanted to see characters who were aspirational. Maybe even my teens, right? Cause, cause you're, because you're forming yourself, and now we're fully formed. Well, I hope I'm not fully formed. I mean, what's after that? If I'm fully formed in my, my late 30s, early 40s... Fucking like, awesomeness. Right, well, I guess, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, I, I want to see somebody else's point of view. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In a way. You want to see long, outside I, of yourself. I, yeah, I want to I see something unique that you know, changes the way I see something that I might have thought would was was familiar ordinarily. Right. And so that's kind of why, Raman, I, I gravitate towards all of this weird shit that you <laughs> sometimes find frustrating <laughs> that I make you read it. No, it's a psychological study on you, my fucked up friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, right? But I certainly don't find anything aspirational. It's like spiral. <laughs> Like, well, you know what's funny? What's so funny about that? Because we've talked about this a little bit, at least about the authors. When, you know, the knee-jerk conservative reaction, and I'm guilty of it sometimes, is, oh, wow, for him to write that, he must be really fucked up. Or for someone to like that, they must be really... No, it's not. It's it's an escapism. It's wanting to see a different perspective. That's what it is. I, it's a, yeah, it's exploring... I'd rather you read that, yeah. The, the, it's exploring the dark path, the probing some of the darkness of humanity you know it's interesting the the books that i've been drawn to that appeal to me most since we started this podcast i'm literally preparing for a teenager teenage girl to grow up in my house like she's five and a half going on 15 right now right oh, attitude wow. is forming <laughs> no and it's i'm it's it's not because i'm trying to understand it I, I find it interesting and appealing i want to understand it and and then on top of that as an adult inheriting this world like that we are this really fucked up world grappling with all the bullshit going on in this world is why I'm drawn to reading 
the books about Kent State, the book about Japanese internment, the books about, you know, Palestine. Like, I'm drawn to the things that I'm obsessed with, right? Like my daughter, my, my children, them growing up and me being a parent to them and trying to understand what that was like, trying to rekindle those frustrations. But then also wrap my head around the fucked up world that we're inheriting that they're going to inherit that those are the books that i've been drawn to and then obviously there's a little bit of superhero sci-fi escapism i guess but honestly even if it's not the stuff we read in our youth be it like black science it's all nostalgia at this point if that makes sense isn't it interesting how for some of these comics you know they're they're, you're, you're you're taking pieces of it and it's starting to become sort of a life manual for you or mm-hmm. a guide, a preparation for like what is to come. I mean, obviously that's yeah. not the case for all the comics, but clearly I know the stuff you're preparing for. <laughs> I'm preparing for the apocalypse. But it's we're living in like, it, maybe. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, again, even the the darker comics that we read, you can get a sense of how to cope with the current yeah. world of what to do and more importantly, maybe what not to do. Not to say that these comics are meant to be didactic in any sense, but it's just interesting that you and I both are piecing together these guides from various sources in terms of how to go about our lives from here on out. I think, I think fiction and storytelling is a powerful medium and a vehicle for it. Because again, if you were to read an actual manual, be it an Ikea guide or a YouTube how-to video or some reality show about home improvement, I don't know. It's kind of dry. Like story is the injection. I mean, why do you think religion has persisted for so long, right? These are stories that tell morals. These are stories that are guides. Stories are powerful. And and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Comic books are a great storytelling vehicle that gives you equal parts like visual stimuli, but also leaves enough up to your imagination. Yeah, of course, then you got the the dark side to the stories, the narrative as a means to convey information. Of course, nowadays you've got all of these narratives around the vaccine and COVID, the misinformation that often comes in the form of a story, in the form of a narrative, like QAnon, for instance. It tells a story. Maybe if these people just read more comic books, they wouldn't be as susceptible to it. Well, or maybe they'd be even more susceptible to it. It's only a matter of time before you have the misinformation delivered in comic book form. Oh, shit. I feel like I gave somebody an idea. <laughs> the Pandora's box is open. <laughs> well, we, well, we, I, 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 I want to I ask you one of the questions you asked me a while back. Um, what about you with this book? Are, are you going to continue your Vagabound journey? Yeah, I, I probably will pick up volume two. Not, not right now, but I, I do want to know what happens next. That's kind of like really a very simple reason but i guess it's 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 good enough i want to know what happens next i you know the the volume one ended right when it was getting good and you're kind of seeing the acceleration of musashi's journey and you know again i am curious about his evolution as a character he starts out as a very kind of feral bestial sort of young man who's just willing to kill everybody in his path how does that change, right? He eventually becomes the sort of warrior philosopher. So what does like the finished version of him look like? I, I don't I don't know. You know, what about his friend, the buffoon? How does he change? This book is sort of like everyone sort of at the nadir of their lives, if you will. And I'm kind of curious to see what happens as they go forward, as they try to dig themselves out of it. I know that there is sort of like structurally it's sort of like one he's kind of prepping himself for a series of fights throughout this entire series. So what does Takeshiko 
do within that narrative structure of just, you know, prepping for one fight after the next. Because, you know, over 36 volumes, that can get tedious. So I looked to see for I looked for an evolution of this character as he as he kind of goes through each battle, as he prepares for each battle. And I will also say the book is just beautiful to look at. The artwork is beautiful. It can be moody at times. It's kinetic at times. Takeshiko's just got like a tremendous range. I'm I'm very intrigued. I, I think we need to revisit this at some point. I don't know when. Maybe after we read Blade of the Immortal, it might be kind of cool just to see how they stack up next to each other. I, I'm genuinely curious what percentage of this podcast is manga. <laughs> we've probably done 10% manga right now. I don't think any manga that we've done has been alike. They've all been really, really different. It's a, it's just as, if not a more diverse medium than American comics, because for a much longer time, the Japanese have respected comics as a storytelling vehicle. It's not just one genre of superheroes, which up until about 30 years ago or 20 years ago was kind of do- the dominant thing in American comics. It's just a diverse and fascinating medium in itself. Well, speaking of diverse and fascinating, next week we're going to try to keep things diverse and fascinating for you, our faithful listener, because Roman and I are going to interview the award-winning creator Jen Wang, writer and illustrator of some really excellent graphic novels, including The Prince and the Dressmaker, which came out in 2018, and Stargazing, which came out in 2019. We're going to talk about her work, her life, and what it means to be Asian in today's America. This interview originally ran last December on Modern Minorities. Now, that's Roman's other podcast, where he and co-host Sharon Lee Tony interview people from all sorts of cultural backgrounds about how their diverse experiences impacted where they are today. Basically, it's a podcast that Roman doesn't do drunk. Yeah, I can't see you, girl, can you see me? Cause I'll tell you everything about 